Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Please follow along with me as I read. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, indeed we come into your presence the great Holy One. Lord, and we marvel that you would allow us, your creatures, to approach your throne. We marvel in the grace that you've extended as we are going to see here at Peter writes to these believers that are scattered throughout modern Turkey, a recognition of who we are because of what your son has accomplished. Father, I just pray that you would guide us as we go to the text. For some, this has been a full week. There's been issues related to job, perhaps at school, perhaps it's a test result they're still waiting for. And all these things kind of just percolate. And I just pray, Lord, that you would allow us to focus in on what you have in the word. And thank you for your precious scriptures. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you are new with us, uh, we are journeying through one of the latter New Testament writings. This letter that Peter is writing to a group of believers who are scattered out throughout what is now modern Turkey. He says, in fact, just to review, let's look what he says in verse 1. From Peter, an apostle, to those temporarily residing abroad. And we talked about that. He said, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by being set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for the sprinkling with Jesus Christ's blood. So we, these are believers. And so as we saw in the Thanksgiving, that's verses 3 all the way to verse 12, he rehearses the glorious salvation He's setting us up, isn't he? Because he's going to talk about how we're to live in a world that's rather hostile. It's an appropriate letter for us living in this day and age. And he first wants to highlight, this is, this is what we have because of what Jesus has accomplished. 
And then the latter part of chapter one, which we've looked at the last two weeks, were these four commands, a, a call to hope, uh, a, a desire that you, you are holy, a command to live in fear of God, and a mandate to love. And so we looked at those. And so as he goes back into chapter, well, as we look into going into chapter two, he reviews once again who we are in Christ. And that's what we're going to see as he then is going to look at some various ways we live that out in society, in the home, in our marriage, and so forth. And we'll get to that. But today we're looking at who we are in Christ and our identity in him. And the first of these is to be noted is our significance in Christ, which is found in verses four through six. And it says so. As you come, and a, a better way to maybe render this is come, that's, that's worship. As you come to worship, and notice it says him, doesn't it? Who's the him? Well, it's obvious in the context that we're talking about Jesus. As you come to worship the Lord, notice he says a few things about the him. First of all, he says the him is a stone. Uh, stone is indestructible, all right? Uh, it's strong, it's irremovable. And we're told elsewhere that Jesus is the rock. It corresponds to the Old Testament, a phrase that sometimes well, we used to sing, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. You know why I'm not in the choir. <clears throat> El Shaddai, right? Uh, that, it means almighty, but it also could mean God who is the mountain, God who is the, the bulwark, who is the rock. And so we see here, just like Yahweh is, so is the Lord. And we're told that it's a living rock, a living stone. Now, I find that rather interesting. I don't usually think of stones as living, do you? Uh, the, 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 it's an unusual metaphor. But if we understand biblical theology, if we understand Old and New Testament, we're going to see some things that occur here. Peter is going to refer several times to the Old Testament just in this little passage. He'll quote several times from the Old Testament. He'll make several allusions. This is an allusion, and it's to Psalm 118. It's a passage that specifically is mentioned in verse 7, and it refers to the Lord as our security, our, our firm foundation. And Peter is utilizing this, and we'll talk more on that as we go through the passage. But the living is also important because elsewhere he mentions the living hope we have, this living word that we have. We've already seen this in chapter 1. And unlike the Old Testament system, the legal system, which has now been fulfilled in Christ, we're, we're part of what the Old Testament saints longed for. <laughs> Those Old Testament saints longed for something that was better, and that better is found in a resurrected Lord who, who has risen from the dead. And so, it's a living stone. This isn't the first time Peter used Psalm 118. In his address to the religious rulers in Acts chapter 4, if you're jotting down notes, Acts chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, he will quote from Psalm 118. He says, and let it be known to all of you, remember he's referring here to the religious rulers, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this, sta this man stands before you healthy. This man, here it is, is the stone that was rejected, the builders, and this one has become the cornerstone. And Jesus 
also referred to himself as the stone in the parable of the tenants back in Matthew chapter 21. And so Peter says, come, come worship this, this living stone. And he tells us two other things about the stone. Notice what he states. It's rejected by others, and yet it's prized and accepted by the Lord. In fact, he says it's priceless. Kind of reminds me of an item at a flea market, right? Rejected by some, prized by others. But this is far more valuable than something at a flea market. That is for sure. Uh, and he again draws on, I think, Psalm 118 again to show that this one who was crucified, rejected, has been vindicated in the resurrection and exaltation. Already, twice, he's referred to Jesus as being resurrected from the dead. Three times, he's talked about Christ's glory and all that that shows. In other words, the Lord has the final word. The people might reject him, but not God. And we see here, you, we are called to come worship this living stone. He doesn't end there. He says in verse 5, you yourselves are also living stones. Now, this is profound. So hang on to your bippers here, because here, here we go. Matthew 16, Peter makes the confession to Jesus, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, that's correct. And upon that confession, I will build my church Jesus being the foundation of the church, and we are built upon it, these living stones. And the implications are huge for us, aren't they, this morning? First, we're part of what is indestructible. Remember the old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We rest, we're built part of the structure and even says we're being built up as a spiritual house. In other words, not only are we a living stone, but, but we're identified with him. We should be a chip off the old block. No pun intended, right? And, and even says, notice what he says, you're being built up, you're a holy priesthood, offer this up, you're acceptable to God. You're being chosen, just as the son was chosen to be the living stone. We are precious, just as he is precious. And this being built up is that we're, we, as we come in worship, as we come to exalt the name of the Lord through prayer, through praise, through song, we're, we're being seen as part of the spiritual house, a place where God dwells. Years ago, we moved from Ohio to Indiana. It was a two-month process. It was a nightmare. We had stuff in Ohio. We had stuff in a pod. We had stuff in Indiana. I mean, it was crazy. And we had two little ones. And my wife had just had double carpal tunnel surgery. So it, it was crazy. And, and we felt like vagabonds. You know, your stuff is everywhere. Why we didn't sell it, I don't know. Don't, we won't go there. Just donate it. I will next time. <laughs> Nearly two months, you're, you're homeless. And to think, you know, not to spiritualize this, but we, we may feel at times we don't have a home. Living in this world, I mean, let's face it, the world doesn't care about anything that the, the Lord cares about. Things of righteousness, goodness, and true love. No, none of that's going to be found here but it is found in God's house. It is found in this, this place where we belong. Remember, 
as I read earlier the greeting, this is a group who are vagabonds. Remember what chapter 1, verse 1 states? He says, you're temporarily residing, but take heart because you're being built up in a spiritual house. You do have a permanent dwelling. You're a member of a community, unlike the society in which you live. And so, he says, you're living stones. And with that comes the implication, it's indestructible. We are identified with Christ. We have a home. We have the hope of the resurrection and the future glory because we're tied with Christ. And notice what else Peter states. He says, as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer up praise or spiritual sacrifices. In other words, we have an opportunity to exalt the Lord. And once again, he's got a couple metaphors here that's mixed, isn't it? He says you're a stone, that's part of a house, and then you're a priesthood, and it can be a little bit discombobulated, but he's combining these to try to bring home a point. I love mixed metaphors. Uh, Not the sharpest cookie in the jar. It's easy as falling off a piece of cake, right? (laughs) Don't judge a book before it's hatched. Uh, You you, you have these mixed metaphors, And, and there's a mixed metaphor here But as one scholar states, we're not to be seen as being built in part of a rectangular building. This commentator writes, the beauty of this new and living temple made of people should no longer be expensive gold and precious jewels, but the imperishable beauty of holiness and faith in Christian lives, qualities which will reflect the glory of God. He says, this is the house we belong to. And we serve in it as he states here, holy priest, offering up sacrifices. And you ask, well, what are the sacrifices? Well, I would argue it's praise. It's thanksgiving. It's, it's living for him. It's living out what the spirit has given. In fact, it goes back to the spiritual house, which is a reference, I would argue, to the Holy Spirit. As we come together, as we worship the Lord, we offer praise back to him. We exalt him. The great missionary of years gone by to Africa, David Livingston, writes, if a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? That's why Paul says, this is your reasonable service. This is who we are. And he'll go on to alliterate that or spell that out here in a minute. But we're part of being built up in this spiritual house as holy priesthood. And you know, notice what he says. We offer these sacrifices how? Through Jesus Christ. In order to please the Lord, it must be done through Christ. <laughs> the joy of knowing him when done through Christ is acceptable. There, in other words, there's, there's no gift. No, no matter how much you spend or how long it took for you to make it, the only way it's acceptable to the Lord if it's done through him. And you ask, well, how? How can that be? How do we do this through Christ? Well, I would argue a life, or a ministry for that matter, which fails to pray is in trouble. Uh, A life or ministry which is drifting in sin is in trouble. A ministry which is just as concerned what others think is in trouble. It's what we're looking for is a life that exalts the Lord, gives glory to him. This is how we do it through Christ. In other words, it's, it's loving him and loving others as even the motto here that we use at the church. And so he says, come. Come, that's, that's worship him. 
And he gives us a reason in verse 6, for it says, and I love that he turns to Scripture, the basis for us coming to him is not found in human thought or feelings. It's not some wise saying that Peter has from the apostolic group that he can just unleash or, or, or lay out. It's not based upon Peter's past experiences. In fact, when he gets to Second Peter, he said, yeah, we saw the Lord high and lifted up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but you have something far more sure, which is the word of God, which is over our experience. And so he takes us to the word and he says, for it says in scripture, that phrase is used 51 times in the New Testament, in scripture. And by the way, every time it's cited, it's a book in the Old Testament. It's never an Apocrypha book. It's never anything outside of the Old Testament. Peter will refer to the Old Testament 12 times, and half of them will be from the book of Isaiah. <laughs> I love it. And two of those you'll see here in this passage. But he says, according to Scripture, and he's going to appeal to two texts from Isaiah, one from Psalm 118, the text we mentioned, in order to show Christ in all his glory and expound upon the doctrine of the church. The first of these is in verse 6. For he says, look, I lay in Zion, this is Isaiah 28, a stone, a chosen and priceless cornerstone, and whoever believes in him will never, and this is emphatic, uh, there's no way, absolutely not, you'll be put to shame. So he says one of the reasons we come to worship, this call to worship, is because we have a glorious cornerstone. Isaiah 28, understanding the context, is, is one where there was a declaration of wars and judgment upon Israel. The Lord pulls out a paddle and he's had it, and he's going to spank Israel very hard. Amidst the boastful statements that Israel is making, Yahweh announces in his grace, there will be a redeemer. There will be a cornerstone who comes. And it's interesting, later Jewish writings, the Targum on Isaiah, also understood that what this text is referring to is the Messiah. There's a stone coming. There's one that we long for, he says here, and he's laying it in Zion, this stone, a chosen, and I love this, priceless stone. The text highlights that it's God who lays out our salvation. It was God's plan. It was God's purpose. Christ is the sole means for acceptance before a holy God. And we're going to see that. It's priceless because it will cost the very blood of the cornerstone. That is of Christ. And so we started this section with the living stone. We end this section with the cornerstone to indicate this is our significance. It's rooted, it's built upon him. And that's significant, but he's not done. Because he's gonna talk now about our security in Christ. Verse seven, so you believe and you see his value. That is, you see the cornerstone's value. You understand who this Christ is and you've embraced it. Now, he's going to contrast that with some folks who don't, because he said, but those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected, this is Psalm 118, well, that one that had become the cornerstone, verse 8, it will become the stumbling block. And they stumble because, and watch this, they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
There's a group who've understood the value and have treasured this living stone. There's a group, the stone becomes an offense. It becomes the stumbling block for them and they can't get their head around it. We're about entering that time of year when you have trick-or-treaters come to the door and you got that bowl of candy. I don't know about you, but in our house, the Twix bars always go first. There's no way a trick-or-treater is getting those. <laughs> those are the ones we value. The Almond Joys, have at it. There's a ton of them in there for you, all right? <clears throat> yes, We've, we, as we grow in our love and appreciation of how precious Jesus is, think about things of this world become less attractive. Like the Almond Joys, we regulate those things of this world Right? But sadly, if Jesus is not more precious, then he plays maybe second fiddle to the things of the, that we need to be focused in on. As priests, notice again, going back to verse 5, we're offering up spiritual sacrifices, we're exalting the Lord. But if he's not precious, if he's not, as verse 7 says, that which we value, then we're in danger. Psalm 118 is very interesting in the text about Jesus being the cornerstone because it's in the context of rejecting the stone. Here you see this one that has been valued, this one that can bring life, and it's been rejected. Edward Selwyn writes in his commentary, to those who refuse Jesus, he is a constant anomaly, meeting them in unexpected places and challenging their indifferences. Both Jesus and Peter referred to Psalm 118 elsewhere. And it's interesting because when they use Psalm 118, it's an indictment on the religious rulers for rejecting him. This one is here, the living stone. And Peter is writing to believers who are scattered abroad, suffering for their faith. He says, no, look who you are in Christ. Cling to this living stone. Do not be like those who don't see the value. And in verse 8 again, it's a stumbling block. It's a rock for them to trip over. This idea here is they're going to be brought to shame. You'll be exalted, those who accept the stone. For those who don't, it will be one of disgrace. In the place of Isaiah and Peter, Williams writes, in applying these Isaiah texts to Jesus, Peter upholds his previously stated principle that the prophets earnestly sought after and wrote down the good news about Christ. His reference to Christ as the cornerstone in Isaiah 28 shows that it was God's plan and purpose for those to believe. The word stumble is not just a oopsie, right? You know, uh, it's like lifting that podium last week. That was an oopsie. Uh, that thing was heavy. Um, but no, no, it's, it's not that kind of a stumbling. This is intentional. It wasn't an accident. The term carries this idea of disobedience with a strong refusal to believe. You see it in the text. What's it say? They stumble because, verse 8, they disobey the word. It goes back to the word, doesn't it? We're no different than Adam and Eve in the garden. It goes back to Genesis 3. Do you accept what God has said or do you not? 
Do you believe that he is Lord and you are not? <laughs> you oppose the word, that is Jesus. There is no hope. I, heard, I hope you hear that this morning. You, you can't ride this fence. Either the stone is what you're being built upon or it is going to crush you. The text is clear. Peter is saying it here. Listen, he said, this is your choice. Either you value it or you're, you're going to stumble. And again, the, the idea here is of falling. It's interesting in the context of Isaiah 8, the text here that's referred to in verse 8 is one where God's people are encouraged to fear the Lord. Listen to the words from Isaiah 8. You must recognize the authority of the Lord of heaven. He is the one you must respect. He is the one you must fear. He will become a sanctuary, but a stone that makes a person trip and a rock that makes one stumble to the two houses of Israel. He will become a trap and a snare to the residents of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over the stone and the rock and will fall and be seriously injured, will be ensnared and captured. The writer of Isaiah is saying, hey, who do you fear? Careful, it better not be the Assyrians, it better be the Lord. You better value this rock, this one that you're built upon. And sadly, in Isaiah 8, the Lord is reaching out to his people with the promise that he would still be their God. That's the good news. And yet, he is about to discipline them. And who do you fear? For the Israelites, they feared the foreign powers more than God. Is it the fear of isolation, rejection, illness, death, the economy? Fill in the blank. If you fear God, all of those are eclipsed. And you understand again in verse 7, to repeat it one more time, by seeing his value, you believe. You understand what is found in the living stone. Now there is a very problematic clause in verse 8. This is where preachers, I was hoping Pastor Michael would be preaching today. Because the text says... And he did a glorious job last week, didn't he? I was so challenged for the word. It says, as they were destined to do. And many scholars argue, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Is this stating that they are destined to fall, destined to be judged? Well, nothing in scripture, I would argue, suggests that God has foreordained some to death or to destruction. Ezekiel 33, as surely as I live, the Lord says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. And 1 Timothy 2 wishes that all men and women should be saved, right? And yet we know God will not be mocked. Galatians is clear. Refusal to believe is clear it will be judged. Not everyone will be saved, sadly, Moral creatures cannot even blame Satan, according to the book of James. The only person you can blame is yourself. Look in the mirror for the consequences that you have selected. And we've also seen that neutrality over against Christ is impossible. So what's the solution here? I would argue with many scholars that the disobedience of any unbeliever will result in his or her destiny. That is to stumble it's, in other words, it's not man's unbelief, but the punishment for unbelief that has been determined. You do this, the consequence is clear because God has already laid it out. 
As surely as a gracious and merciful God saves the believer, so surely also does he punish the unbeliever. A just and holy God can do no other. And I think that's what's being highlighted here. Peter's stating either you value this and you're built up, or you're going to stumble, which is preordained by God for those who do not obey and listen. Why? Why nestle this, Peter, and a letter that these people are trying to live for you? They're struggling and they're probably struggling in their faith a little bit as we're going to see and living out the spiritual life. Why, why would you put this here? I think it's great comfort. I wrote down, stressing God's sovereignty comforts the reader, assuring them that the evil in this world is not severed from God's control. The Lord still reigns even over those who oppose him. And he's already stated, if you oppose me, this will be your consequence. Our security, again, I think Peter's highlighting in this section, is found in Christ. So we have the significance of our position in Christ. We have our security. And then I love verses 9 and 10. We have our acceptance. This is a familiar text. Some of you may have this memorized in verse 9, he says, but, what a contrast to those who found offense to God. He says, but you, let me come back to you who have found the value. He says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own. Let's unpack that, a chosen race. I love it. Already twice he's referred to as Christ, that is the living stone as chosen. Now he says, oh, and by the way, those of you who've embraced Christ, you're also chosen you're seen together with him, and the Lord is intimately involved in our lives. Secondly, we're a royal priesthood. This goes back to what he mentioned earlier. Again, you have this mixed metaphor, but it reminds me of Exodus 19, where those two images are used of Israel. The church does not replace Israel, but the church comprised of both Jews and Gentiles enjoys a unique status as God's people at this time frame, and he says, you are a people of my own. Wow. Think about that for a minute. You are God's possession if you know Christ as your savior. You're like a Twix bar. <laughs> he finds precious, that you are precious in, in, in his sight as you have found pleasure and delight in him. For all of us who know Christ as our savior and knowing that we're chosen, we're royal, we're holy, even when we don't feel like it. We are his. We are God's special position, and with that comes identity, it comes security, and it comes preeminence. Why? The text tells us. Look what it says. So that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you. We have the joy of declaring God's glory. <laughs> we he doesn't need us. He can use angels. I mean, we're fallen creatures that have been saved. And yet, he says, I want you to declare my glory, my virtue. How do we do that? Again, loving God, loving others. The purpose of our salvation, I would argue, is to declare the excellence of God. Notice he says, the one who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, Peter's not only talking on an individual level, but also a corporate level. 
And I think that's important because sin not only affects how you tarnish God's reputation, but it also affects the community as we seek to glorify him. That's why I love the baby dedication. It's an opportunity for us to come together as a church to say, yeah, we're gonna stand behind these parents and we're gonna love on these kids. But more importantly, as we love them, we're gonna try to point them to Christ. So we pray over them that the Lord would protect them. Then he gets to verse 10. And he quotes now from Hosea. Now, of all the books of the Old Testament, I, I'm not sure I would have thought of Hosea. If you remember Hosea as a prophet that was told to, to well, we'll leave it at this, marry a lady of ill repute, right? The, the lady represents Israel. She's unfaithful. She's godless. And they have children. And one of them, the second son, was called Loami, which means you're not my people. How's that for a child's name? Everywhere you go, who are you? Well, you're not my people. <laughs> Oops, right? It was an indictment against Israel for rejecting them. And Hosea 1.9 says, because you are not my people, I am not your God. Can you imagine? The Lord says, I, I may make a covenant with you, but you are not my people. Peter reminds the believers of their calling. They are recipients of God's mercy, which includes his care and his concern. It's the basis for all the privileges, the status we have found there in verse 9. Remember, God did not need us. We needed him. And you might just want to write across the page of your Bible here, grace. That's the grace of God. A God who's holy, which the choir is saying about, we get to participate as a holy priesthood. This is our God that we serve. So you say, okay, confidence, what do, we, what do we find here in this text? Let me give you three principles that they're in your notes. First of all, we need to take some time this week to praise the Lord for our salvation. We need to rehearse these truths. Think about this. Satan cannot under, undermine the character of God and the truth that we are his. That's a fact. However, Satan can undermine your understanding and appreciation of God's character. That's a problem. Maybe God isn't so loving. I've been diagnosed with cancer. I've lost a spouse. God, are you really there? It's what the psalmist asked in Psalm 13. You know, how long, O oh Lord, can I trust you in all this? And as he rehearses, he comes back to, yeah, I can, because I've seen your hand in the past, so I trust you. And Satan would love to undermine the character of God. He'd also love to undermine your standing before the Lord and who you are. If he can undermine your understanding and confidence in him, then he can neuter you. He can sideswipe you. He can derail you. Think about this. Who are we in Christ? Let me read you a laundry list as I was thinking through. Who are we in Christ? We are a child of the heavenly father who loves us and knows us by name. We're a new creation, the old is past. We're accepted, reconciled with God. We're no longer a slave to sin, we're freed from darkness. We are forgiven, sanctified, and justified. We're the very righteousness of God. We are at peace with God. We're being transformed to the likeness and glory of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're chosen and loved by God. We're part of the body of Christ, a member of the church. We're a temple for the Holy Spirit. We're ambassadors for him. We are God's masterpiece uniquely gifted by him. We have an inheritance that's kept by the Lord. We have a place waiting for us with the Lord. And we have a glorious future when we will see our Savior face to face 
and dwell in his presence forever. Right? That's our God. So we don't need to be running around like we've been sucking on prune juice. Right? We have a glorious God. This is who we stand before an almighty. This is why Peter says, look who you are in a world who has nothing to do with you, has, is, is have acted hostile to the things of the Lord. Don't you miss who you are in Christ. Life's distractions, confusions, criticisms, sin can have us question our standing before the Lord. Rehearse the truths this week. This is who you are in Christ. Read Ephesians 1. Go back and look at, at 1 Peter 2. Secondly, the purpose of our salvation is to bring glory to God. We have a responsibility to share the character of our great God with those who do not know him. My grandma, my mom's mom, I loved her to death. She was great. She had some quirks. And, and one of those is that we knew growing up that she loved candy, but the good candy, she hid it in this cupboard. The candy that she brought out was that which she really didn't like. Well, the first time that Lori met her, we were all sitting around as a family, and she brought out these chocolates. She said, help yourself. These are the ones I don't like. And Lori starts laughing. And I'm like, no, no, it's not a joke. <laughs> it's not a joke. The world doesn't need another Almond Joy. Sorry. They need a Twix bar. Going back to the candy. They need Jesus. I was talking to a group who worship at a church out in Connecticut, and they said, we are seeing awakening in the East Coast. People are tired. Where do we go for hope? <laughs> Where do we go for identity and acceptance? It seems that every parcel, every element of our society is frayed, and it's wound up bankrupt. Now is the time for the church to rise up and say, look who we have. Look who you can be based upon this living stone that we have. May the Spirit use us to assist others to see the value of our Lord. May we proclaim his virtues to a world that desperately needs to hear. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. And finally, the incredible benefits from our identity in Christ provide strength for the present, but hope for the future. <laughs> when we recall what the Lord has done for us, we can rest in his wisdom. When we recognize our status in Christ, we can live in his power. When we reflect upon the grace that he has given, we can trust in his love. When we relish the mercy the Lord has extended, we can cling to his hope. No trial will change your status if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. No failure in the past is so great that it can't be forgiven. No social upheaval can thwart God's plan. You are a chosen race if you know Jesus this morning. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Father, we come to you. We marvel at the grace you have showered upon us. And I'm not naive to think that there is perhaps one or two in this room that have been a little uncomfortable. The Holy Spirit is moving. And they know, I, I'm one of those that hasn't seen the value of the stone. 
I've been playing games with the Lord. Oh, I go to church or I do X, Y, and Z. And we know that it's solely by trusting in your son, Jesus, coming to an understanding that we are a sinner. And the only means for that sin to be covered, to be atoned, is in the death of our Savior, Jesus. For those who know you, your son, as their Savior, Lord, we rejoice. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that we can say we belong to you. Lord, as the recipients of First Peter, we live in a world that would, is often hostile to your things. We feel like sojourners in a world that's so foreign to your ways. Thank you. The strength that you give, the identity, the opportunity that in the midst of this crud, we can cling fast to you because of Christ. Jesus, in whose name.